0: Today you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an AGarts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down, and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support.
1: We are a singing group of cats yowling on a back fence, of course. Oh no, what is that we see? It's a buzzard on a dead horse. Should we run and hide? Should we stay and fight? Should we just ignore? Sing aloud with pride. I say we run. I say we hide. I say ignore him and pretend that he died.
0: I'm sure listeners will recognize that last song as the winner of our bad poetry contest. The winner was Monica Leo. This time, in this episode, we are welcoming Monica back as not a bad poet, but a good memoirist. We're welcoming her with her friend, Lori Erickson. Both have new memoirs. Monica's is called Hand, Shadow, Rod. It's the story of her 50-year journey with her puppet troupe. And Lori's is called Every Step is Home. It's a memoir about spiritual geography. Hand Shadow Rod is published by Ice Cube Press, and Every Step is Home is published by Westminster John Knox Press. Now we're going to hear excerpts from these books. First, Monica Leo, Hand Shadow Rod, And then, Laurie Erickson, every step
1: is home. That evening, our gig was in a restaurant performing hall, a common feature in that region. Elizabeth, a young puppeteer having career problems, attended the show and invited us to her studio to talk, shop, and dispense advice. Her studio was located in a half-ruined old castle surrounded by woods. The night was dark, just a sliver of a moon peeking through the trees. We noticed a covered wagon parked in front of the broken-down castle wall. As we waited for Elizabeth to get her keys, we encountered a diminutive man, bearded, wearing a battered hat and a dark wool coat. He greeted us. Grüß Gott. The typical southern German greeting, loosely translated, God bless, put me at ease. Don't be afraid. I live in this wagon. I felt transported into a Grimm's fairy tale, talking to a gnome in the woods, He was one of the many displaced by reunification. With cynical good humor, he outlined his career path before and after. He hadn't always lived in a wagon. His post-unification income required downsizing. The fairy tale image stayed with us as we wandered through the echoey halls of the castle until we saw a crack of light under a door and entered Elizabeth's cozy studio. She bemoaned her failure to find consistent artistic partners and good marionette string. Unable to help her with the former, we sent her good marionette string as soon as we returned home.
2: But my experiences in Dunbar Cave make me believe that contemporary humans shouldn't dismiss caves so readily as places of spiritual power. My reasons have something to do with the importance of embodied spirituality. Being in the cave made me realize how almost all of my most significant spiritual experiences have had a physical trigger. Stepping inside a cathedral, for example, and being overwhelmed by the echoing interior space. Standing on the edge of a canyon, watching the light play across its peaks and valleys. Walking on a beach and hearing the waves crash rhythmically, wordlessly speaking of something vast and deep. I felt something similar when we entered the twilight zone of Dunbar Cave and then headed into darkness lit only by our small flashlights. There was spiritual power there that I could feel in my bones. What helps explain what I experienced in Dunbar Cave, I think, is the universal human need for myths. The modern world too often equates myth with lie, but a better formulation, to use an old truism, is that some truths are so large that only a myth can contain them. That's why the great myths of antiquity still speak to us, from the Greek story of the death of Icarus who flew too close to the sun to the Norse tales of the end of the world known as Ragnarok. Entering the cave propelled me into an experience of myth, including when I stood by the underground stream and thought of Charon rowing his boat on the river Styx. As a human I'm primed by millennia of evolution to try to make sense of frightening places which is exactly what myths attempt to do All right welcome
0: Lori and Monica who have both struggled most of their lives to deal with entering frightening places and that they're both women who have their own businesses and for many many years In two vastly different areas, but both wrote a book during COVID about their experience. Lori, Every Step is Home, A Spiritual Geography from Appalachia to Alaska, and Monica Hand Shadow Rob," The Story of Euland Spiegel Puppet Theater. So one of the things that struck me is you're both really writing travel books. Monica's traveled all over the world with her puppet theater, and she's gone to um, all throughout Europe, Japan, Mexico, and Lori is never home, as far as I can see, and she's traveled all over the world, but had some restrictions during COVID. I was actually kind of relieved. I thought, oh good, she's going to be home. Of course, um, she figured out a way to keep traveling, so I'll let her tell you about that in a minute, but I'm wondering where your travel wanderlust came from. Um, Lori grew up on a dairy farm, and that's just the epitome of being stuck in one place because you have to do the chores. You have to milk twice a day. Was that something that, you know, you were fighting against that was the inspiration to uh, get on the plane out of Decorah and f- fly away, or how did that work? or
2: Well, I blame it on a set of books. It just goes to show how important books can be. Um, So nearly every Sunday afternoon, we would go to my grandparents' house, and my grandmother, who had dementia by the time I knew her, but... Uh, she had been a school teacher, and she had a set of books on the very, very tiny little library that they had. And it was the John L. Stoddard Lecture Series, which were from, like, around 1900, um, um, lecturer and travel writer who had given um, tours around the United States talking about his trips around the world. And the books were full of these wonderful sepia-toned photographs and stories of his time abroad, and that was what really planted the seed for me.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. So you were inspired by uh, travel books. And Monica had a family that ended up having to travel uh, to the United States. You want to talk about those circumstances?
1: Yes, I'm the child of immigrants. My parents were refugees from the Nazi regime in Germany. And of course, uh, that meant that my family was scattered to the four winds by the war. Uh, quite a few of them ended up staying in Germany, but they also ended up everywhere from South Africa to Canada to South America. And of course, that inspired my desire to travel because I wanted to meet these people. I always felt so jealous that my friends in Dubuque, Iowa, where I was growing up, had cousins and all of my cousins were on the other side of the pond so that was what first really made me want to travel and then add to that the fact that if you try to make a living as a puppeteer in the rural midwest travel is part of the equation you have to be willing to travel exactly
0: and in these books um i saw well at the end of monica's book she she gives us the big sweep of her whole 49 years in puppetry business, but I saw both of you traveling during COVID. It was really interesting. And also dealing with the uh, major deaths in your situation, in your family or your partnerships or one way or another. Can you talk about that a little bit, Lori?
2: Yes. Um, um, I was dealing with the, um, aftermath of my mother's death from dementia. She had lived a a good long life and I'd actually written quite a bit about my history with her in my book, Near the Exit. Um, But my thinking about the new book really started with a trip to Chimayo, New Mexico, which is um, a beautiful place associated with healing. And I thought oh, that would be a really good place to go. In the, in the, it was the month after my mother died. And that was just as COVID was starting. And it was a fertile seed indeed that played out uh, through the rest of the book. And then you ended up going to sacred
0: sites all through the United States from Chimayo, which is an amazing shrine in New Mexico, to Chaco Canyon, which is another amazing site in New Mexico. What about you, Monica? What were you dealing with during this time?
1: Well, my husband died in April of 2019, And then my Mexican partner puppeteer died in January of 2020, both pretty unexpected. And then, of course, shutdown, lockdown came less than a month or less than two months later. And I realized that the only way I was going to be able to deal with all of these things was to do something creative every single day. And so my current co-puppeteer, Stephanie, and I got to work building new shows And we each built a new show, a new solo show. And then we heard about a puppet theater in in Arizona uh, doing drive-in puppet shows. And we thought, now that's what we've got to do. And we looked around for a subject. And I listened to public radio sort of obsessively. And I heard a piece about an alligator that they found wandering in a deserted shopping mall in Myrtle Beach. And I thought, oh, that's it. So we wrote a show. We started researching what other animals were up to during lockdown. And there are some amazing stories of what they did when when the humans were sort of out of the scene. And we we took those stories and kind of patched them together and created a story that's oh, probably at least 50% true. And then the rest of it is fantasy. Taking off from the truth, but now suddenly it's a history show because many of the kids that we perform it for don't even remember lockdown because they're so little, you know. So uh, that's what we did. And we took that show, I think we performed it 15 times all over eastern Iowa and parking lots all over the place. And really grateful audiences that were so hungry for something to do. We got a transmitter so they could listen to the, to the, um, to the speaking and the music over their car radios. And it, it really lifted my spirits. It was, it was just the thing to do.
0: And the spirits of all the rest of us who got to see the shows. So Laurie figured out a way to keep, <laughs> to keep touring and um, it was ingenious. Do you want to talk about your adaptation, your travel adaptations?
2: Sure. Well, many of my trips around the world, of course, have been, you know, by airplane and other, other conveyances and, but COVID meant a, a different sort of travel. And so my husband and I have always been campers, uh, but right before COVID, we bought a little teardrop camper. We downsized uh, to one, not that we'd had huge RVs before, but we wanted something that was really mobile and really easy to set up. And so it's just basically a bed on wheels with a kitchen off the back. And it was a great thing to have during COVID. We were so delighted that we had it because it meant that we were so mobile uh, one of the trips we took, we, we took a month and we drove out to Northern California and I, I really wanted to camp under the redwoods on my 60th birthday, which I did. And it was absolutely amazing. And then we wandered our way up the Oregon coast and uh, another chapter is on sacred water and found a bunch of hot springs to soak in. And so that was the longest trip that we did. But most of the research that I did for this book was really out of a little teardrop camper. And it was some of my favorite trips that I've ever taken.
0: They sound just wonderful. I'm, I started researching how I could get myself a teardrop camper after I read your book. And both of you on these trips had a com- companion. And the companions are really the foils for these books. They're really funny. They, um, they provide... Um, what foils do, they provide some tension, some companionship, and a lot of humor. And so uh, Lori was just talking about going to the hot springs, and Bob, her husband, is the foil in this book. And he's, he's constantly has lines like, Oh, no, not more hot springs. What, what are we going to do? <laughs> um, so and so Monica has a foil, it's a puppet foil um, that runs through the book, and it's just brilliant, the commentary that we get. Do you want to talk about Schultz?
1: Sure. Alfred Schultz is our head puppet. I He was one of the first puppets I ever made to perform with for our puppet company. And um, he started out as a king, but he shed his crown very quickly and became sort of an every puppet and started dispensing advice to the people in the audience, but also to us, and he sees the world. You know, he sees my foibles better than I see them. You know, he's he has a tendency to comment. All of his comments are in italics, so you know when Schultz is talking, and he usually he frequently disputes what I just said by by cutting to the chase and cutting to the truth.
0: Yeah, I love it. He goes Schultz here, and then he um, pretty much sets Monica straight thing and Bob, Bob, uh, Laurie's <laughs> husband, is, is serves a bit of a similar function. And the one place in the book where they actually have a fight, I thought, oh, good, look at this, they're having uh, like a normal life here, and um, they're in Alaska, seeing the northern lights.
2: And we really worked to get to Alaska. I mean, it, it, you know, that was a that was an expensive trip, and so our first night out, and it's uh, we're out in this beautiful, dark, uh, nature area and the lights are are coming up on the horizon. And I am so excited. I'm, you know, nearly jumping up and down with excitement. And Bob is complaining because his camera's not working because it's really cold and, uh, and his fingers are cold and every picture he takes doesn't, is not turning out. And so he's, he's complaining and, and I get really mad because, we're not here for him to take pictures. We're here to see the northern lights, and so we have, as I put it in the book, one of those brief but efficient marital arguments that longtime married couples have, where you know you each know what the other person is thinking, what they're going to say next, and what you're going to say next, and so um, and our argument, you no, know, our marital uh, argument efficiency was aided by the fact that it was extremely cold, so it was a brief but intense argument,
0: <laughs> but. They did see the Northern Lights, which is, just uh, sounded absolutely beautiful. Yep. Um, both of you take a deep dive into myth and legend. You could hear that from the readings that they both gave at the beginning of this podcast. And Monica, I know you grew up with reading Grimm's fairy tales um, in German. So talk about how you have then taken a deep dive into the tale, the myth, the story, sense of story, and that comes from those German origins.
1: I grew up, of course, with Grimm's fairy tales. My godfather sent me a book when I was three years old that I immediately loved. I realize now when I look back on that book, that the illustrations in that book have deeply influenced the style of the puppets I've made. Uh, But when I really started looking into folklore, the thing that has fascinated me the most is how the same story keeps on appearing in different cultures. And it's always shaded a little bit by the culture that it appears in. But at the heart of it, it's the same story. And I wonder, is this because those stories are generic forms of human expression and human thought and dreams, or is it because the stories have actually traveled from one place to another? And I guess I'll never know that, but I think it's an interesting question.
0: Or as Carl Jung said, it's part of our psyche. Yeah,
1: that's, I guess, what I meant when I said that they're a generic part of human experience, yeah. Can you
0: uh, think of a a story that would... uh, be the epitome of that, that would cut across all cultures and be
1: a little different twist to them? Probably trickster tales as much as anything else. Um, Rabbit is a really common trickster in a lot of different cultures, uh, in Native American, in African, in African American. But he's basically the same character in, in, in many ways as the sort of um, signature German trickster Till Eulenspiegel. And um, you run into the same, like, for instance, with Till Eulenspiegel, of course, he's also our namesake. There's a story that was, there's a book that was published in uh, 1500 that was supposedly written by somebody whose father had been a good friend of Till Eulenspiegel's. I think it must have been the grandfather, though, because Till lived from 1300 to 1350. But in any case, when you read through those stories, there's 97 of them. And there are a few that are so singular that I know that they really happened in some form or another. But then there are a lot of them that sound an awful lot like rabbit trickster tales with the same kind of, you know, the same kind of foils and the same kinds of things that happen. Great.
0: And Lori. One of my favorite chapters of the book is when you go to the Dunbar Cave in Tennessee, which isn't a spot you know that's sort of on our mental map as the most spectacular place in the United States. But I felt that there you entered into a deeper state of consciousness and go entering this cave. And what I love about the writing in your book is that you have this physical experience and then you look at it Uh, from the lens of comparative religions. So you wanna talk about how that connected you with myth and legend in the cave? Mm
2: -hmm. So I think the cave chapter is actually the one that was most interesting to research because it's not a place that we ordinarily think of as a sacred place, caves. Um, But once you start doing some research, you realize that caves are almost certainly the longest lasting spiritual sanctuaries that humans have ever had. Um, We worshipped in caves for 20,000 years at least, and we know that from the archaeological record. And so today we think of caves primarily as entertainment or perhaps as places for adventure, but that sense of entering a cave to sort of enter the place of transformation, of a place of mystery, a place of danger, uh, both um, in a psychic sense, a spiritual sense, as well as a physical sense. We've largely lost that, but I think with a little bit of effort, we can bring it back. And a place like Dunbar Cave, which is um, the only public cave in the United States where you can see prehistoric cave art in in the dark zone of a cave. Um, the Southwest has a lot of uh, rock art that's on cave faces and in the vestibule of caves, but true dark zone art is is very, very unusual. And so it was a, sort of an existential experience to get the chance to go deep into Dunbar Cave and to see these markings on the walls and to think about what the people were thinking as they created them, what possible uses they would have had, what what they meant to the people who created them. And we'll never know, but that mystery is part of what makes them so appealing. The other thing that's interesting
0: in both of your books is a sense of the elements and you, Laurie, start out, as we said at Chimayo where there is a sense of holy dirt, but you move through dirt, fire, water, and air, Can you talk about that movement through the book? It's fascinating the way it develops.
2: So there are 11 different elements or themes that I focus on, the ones you mentioned, and a few others as well. I knew that I wanted to have an organizing theme for these trips, not just to travel at random to different holy sites, uh, but to really try to find trips that brought out the symbolic meanings of these elements and allowed people to experience them, uh, themselves. Uh, so it, it was, you know, it's not meant to be comprehensive in any way. These were places that all really touched me deeply and especially focusing on that, Central theme, so stone, for example, at Pipestone National Monument in Minnesota, or uh, sacred animals to visit the Buffalo Roundup in Custer State Park in South Dakota. again, that sense of, of, of experiencing the sacred, not just seeing it you know from a distance or reading about it in a book or inside the walls of a building, but to be immersed in it
0: and when I'm immersed in one of Monica's puppet shows, I've always. Uh, been fascinated by the elements that exist in those shows that my favorite, one of my favorite things that you do are the sound effects and the special effects, not just the stories, the elements are there in the stories, but my favorite things is you have like this red silk and you use that as fire, um, running around the stage with it. You have another piece of silk in, um, the Sal Fink show that you undulate up and down as water. And um there's lots of dirt, lots of uh places in in your puppet shows that would represent that element. And then there's lots of flying things through the air, often birds and we have right here with us, um crows on sticks. So we have rod puppets surrounding us in this little interview. You want to talk about some of those elements?
1: Sure. And the one I really want to talk about is the wind. Because the wind, I am one of the few puppeteers I know who truly enjoys doing outdoor shows. Many of them just don't want to deal with the elements. But I find it a really interesting challenge. And frequently, because of where we live and because of where we travel, the state that we have performed the most in, apart from Iowa, is Kansas. And, of course, if there's a windier state than Iowa, it's Kansas. Uh, So, first of all, it took us a while to figure out how to build a puppet stage that would stand up to the wind, but we finally managed that. But the wind still comes and, and messes with us as much as possible. And I do recall, speaking of that Silk River in the Sal Fink Show, which is 12 yards of silk, it was one of the first shows that I created or or fixed or or restaged after my longtime puppet partner Terry Jean quit working with me and I it I, I got a 12yard piece of hand-painted silk which I wanted to snake around all of the playboards to look like a winding river and Terry Jean said, you're going to do this show outdoors. You can't have 12 yards of silk on the stage. I said, this is my show and I'm going to have 12 yards of silk on the stage. And of course, every time I do it, if the wind is just a breeze, it looks really nice because it kind of looks like a choppy river. But a few years ago at a festival in garden city, Kansas, which is probably the only time that I feel like the wind actually was the victor and not the puppeteer. Uh, I could not get that river wrestled into place because the wind was so strong that for the whole forty five minute show, the wind the twelve yards yards of silk blew straight out on the stage left side of my stage, and afterwards I told the audience that that's what the river looks like after the Corps of Engineers gets done straightening it.
0: <laughs> All right, that's Monica Leo with the story of her puppet troupe and in her book called hand shadow rod and uh laurie erickson with her book every step is home monica goes all over the world with puppets laurie goes in this book all over the united states with you know exploring spiritual sites now both of these authors are in a mad, furious uh, race around the state here with their uh, book tours. And so let's get your websites because you'll have a listing of where you're going to appear. I know you've got a million uh, places, so let's just give the listeners your website so they can go on there and take a look.
1: Uh, Mine is puppetspuppets.com.
0: Very good. So Monica Leo at puppetspuppets.com. And Laurie?
2: Lori Erickson
0: Erickson with an S-O-N dot net. And just get on there and show up uh, at bookstores, galleries. They're going to all sorts of interesting places. And you can get a signed copy of the book and hear them read and maybe get a little uh, uh, puppet show? Possibly. (laughs) Possibly. All right. Thank you so much for coming and I wish you all the best with both of your books. I'm happy to announce that Buggyland is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more, were organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers' Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamick. Here, I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe, it's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Haha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartintown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellathorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time.